this morning we're, we're beginning a new study, and we're going to be in it for some time, but before we, before we get into it, I want us to, to uh, establish something in our minds that, that we, were, we are going to commit to God that as He reveals things to us over these next few months, that we are going to follow Him. That, that should kind of result in kind of, oh yeah, I mean, we're going to follow anyway, but but anyway, and so as we are looking at some of these things, some of these things are going to cause some pain on our part. They're going to cause us to ask questions about the way we do things, and we're going to have to come up with some pretty good answers, or we're going to have to change the way we do things. Amen? Amen. Like I said, we're going to be in the what's referred to as the, the pastoral epistles. I didn't call the series a study of the pastoral epistles because nobody would really know what I was talking about, and so it's it's this gospel-centered community trying to figure out what our church should look like as we study 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I mean, these are letters that Paul wrote to guys who were pastoring in, in towns, and he's giving them sound instruction, he's giving them wisdom, and he says essentially, this is what your church should look like. This is, these are the characteristics, the attributes that your church should have in it. If you're doing things right, this is how you should pour yourself out, and this is how they should respond to you. So he's giving these pastors this instruction. Now, over the last couple thousand years, the church has, has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? I mean, we have, we have churches that, that do a variety of things. I've heard over and over again since we moved here a year ago, and I don't know if this is true, I, I, I don't spend time tracking this type of stuff down, but people said, you know that, that Greenville has more churches per capita than any other city. Now, I should probably ask, you mean like the world, or Hunt County, or state of Texas, South, Lower 48? I mean, where, you know, where is this? I've never asked, and so after the service, somebody can come up and give me the rest of that, and we can, we can have that settled. But I don't know if that's true or not. I, 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 I doubt it. I think there probably are more places. Vegas has a chapel on every corner. I don't know if those count as churches, but they do weddings, or so I've been told. I had an aunt and uncle that got married in India, and she didn't think it was legitimate, so they did a drive through in Vegas just to seal it. <laughs> um, we don't have that. I don't think so. But, but churches represent, they manifest themselves in a variety of ways. And so some of the ways that people have gone on, and they say, man, our church is going to be all about music. We have the cutting-edge music. We have all the lights and the bells and the whistles, and, and that's where we're going to find our identity. And you say churches go the other way, and they say, well... Man, you can have all the lights, you can have all that fancy stuff. We're going to have robes, the preacher's going to wear a robe, the choir's going to wear a robe. Every person that walks in the back of the door, we're going to give them a robe. And we're going to be the church of the robes. We have other churches that say, well, we're really kind of a, we want to be around kind of a life situation hobbyist. And so we have cowboy churches, we have biker churches, we have churches that are certainly more liturgical. We have churches that are just kind of play it fast and loose. Man, we have covered what it is to have all these different churches represented. But what we're going to do over the next few months, and granted, it's going to take us some time to walk through these three letters, but we're going to ask them hard questions. Because Paul, he writes to these pastors, and he writes to Timothy specifically, and, and Ephesus is just a mess. I mean, you find people just quarreling and fighting and doing all these things, and he's telling them systematically, this is how you deal with this type of thing. This is how your church should be represented in your community. 
And so as we go through this, what this is asking of us as a body is, do we believe what this says to be true? Do we believe that what this says is something that we should live by? And if we answer yes to both of those things, then chances are we're going to have to change some things. And that's where it gets difficult. And that's where we're going to find some difficulty. But Paul, he writes to, uh, to Timothy. Timothy's in, in uh, Ephesus. Paul is likely somewhere in Macedonia. This is after Paul's first imprisonment. And so what I want to do this morning is just, we're going to go through the first two verses, but I want to give us a little bit of background on Ephesus. So we have a good understanding. We know the crazy that Timothy's dealing with, okay? So Paul, you'll remember, the book of Acts spends a lot of time talking about Paul and his different missionary journeys. And so Paul is, is going through, and he's in Lystra, and he's in Derby. And in chapter 16 of Acts, we see this. It says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were there in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So this is Timothy. Timothy is the guy that Paul rolls into town, and people are like, you have got to meet Timothy. He's a follower of Jesus. He, his mother has been pouring out her life into her son. Man, she's been pouring out her faith, telling him of the greatness of Jesus and how he saved her, how he redeemed her through the power of his blood. Timothy surrenders his life to Christ. But the picture we get in the text is that Timothy's dad's not the same way. The picture we get in the text, because Luke, as he writes Acts, chooses to highlight the fact that Timothy's mother, she's a Jew, but she's a Christian, but he doesn't choose to do the same thing for his father. So Timothy understands what it is to live in a household where only one of your parents is a believer. Timothy understands what it is to live in this, this tension, understands what it is to live in this place. And so Paul meets Timothy. And man, they have a tremendous relationship together. You'll remember that when we studied the book of Philippians, that Paul, speaking of Timothy, said, man, I have no one like Timothy. We are like sold. We're tied together at the soul. I have no one like Timothy. And so they travel along and they go to some different places. And then around about Acts 19, they find themselves in Ephesus. Now, Acts 19, Paul goes into Ephesus. You'll remember that Apollos has already been there. He's been telling people. He's been essentially preaching the gospel in some ways. But Paul goes in and he meets some folks. And they're said to be disciples. And he asked them in verse 2 of chapter 19, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, man, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, then what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So these were people that had heard John the Baptist preach. They had heard of his teachings, and they were followers, disciples of John the Baptist. And can you imagine when Paul tells them? And we don't see all of this fully parsed out in Acts, but when Paul tells them, he says, if you got excited about what John did, let me fill in the rest of the story for you. And so he begins to wax eloquent about the gospel, and he's talking to them about Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And these guys say, man, I surrender everything. I want that. Paul shares the gospel with these guys, and they come to faith. And Paul spends the next two and a half years of his life 
pouring out his life, his energy, everything about him in Ephesus. Things were going so well in Ephesus that, that Paul would go in and he would pray for somebody to be healed, and, and then someone would take just a, a, shrag, a, a shroud, man, this is hard to say, they would take, take a piece of fabric, whew, take a piece of fabric, and they would just use that and they would touch that on somebody and the person would be healed. That's how powerful the Spirit of God was moving in Ephesus. The Spirit of God was moving so powerfully in Ephesus that, that one of the high priests, Sceva, he had seven sons, and these guys knew about Paul and all the things that Paul was doing. And so they would go in, and they would step in, and they would cast out demons, and they would say, we command you in the name of Jesus, on whom Paul preaches, to come out of these people. And so Luke records here in Acts, and the demon responds and says, man, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but I don't know who you are. That's how powerfully the Holy Spirit was pouring out in Ephesus. So Paul is there two years. For two years he is he has worked, for two years he has preached the gospel, and then we find that things are about to go radically wrong in Ephesus. Paul has angered a man named Demetrius. Now Demetrius is, is a silversmith. Demetrius is making idols for the god Artemis, and he gets everybody riled up at Paul saying, man, Paul is he's, he's doing damage to Artemis. Now, when you read this, it doesn't take a careful reading to see that a large part of what Demetrius is upset about is he's had to cancel his holiday. He doesn't have enough money. He's not getting as much money as he once gotten because Paul is cutting into this false understanding of the god Artemis. And so he incites a riot, and the disciples talk Paul into leaving Ephesus. We know that at this time that he leaves Ephesus, that Timothy is already in Macedonia, where Paul goes through. So it's at some point after this that Paul sends Timothy back to Ephesus. He sends Timothy there to, to care, to give instruction to the church, to help give them some type of structure, some type of organization for how to run things, how to handle different situations that come up. And so what we're going to look at today is the first two verses because it is foundational to our understanding of how we're going to look at the rest of this book. Let me read the first two verses out of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Believe it or not, we're going to get through this in about 45 minutes. So Paul writes of himself, and he says that, that he's what? He says, he says, Paul, an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is somebody that the New Testament tells us that has seen the risen Lord. But an apostle is more than that. They are somebody who is operating under someone else's authority. Paul spends the first verse building at the fact that he is not in his own authority. Now think about that for a second. Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus, did he not? He spent two and a half years pouring out his life. He incited a riot that encompassed the whole town. But when it comes to how he's going to defend himself, when it comes to how he's going to legitimize his ability to write into the situation... He doesn't base it on any of that. 
He doesn't say, you'll remember that three or four years ago when I was in Ephesus, man, I brought the gospel. I brought revival. People were taking shrouds of my, of my clothing. They were getting healed. You'll remember that crazy stunt with the, with the Jewish uh, high priest's sons when they went out, and they were invoking Christ's name through me. You remember that? That's the Paul I am. But instead, Paul says, none of that. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul ties his authority on one thing and one thing only. God called him. God sent him. He says it's the command of God. He ties it to two things. He says the command of God, it's also the command of Jesus. That God has spoken to Paul and giving him, given him clear instructions. That God has spoken to Paul and called him, commanded him to be an apostle. That God spoke powerfully into Paul's life, and the only thing Paul did was follow in humble submission and obedience to what God had called him to. So Paul is modeling for them what it is to respond to the call of God in someone's life. So we see here in Paul that when God calls us to something, it's not God coming to us and saying, hey, look, check this out. I've got something great. Take it or leave it. It's just a suggestion probably going to revolutionize everything about you, but, you know, what? it's okay. You don't have to do it. No, Paul looks at it, and he says it's the command of God. It wasn't a suggestion of God. It is a command of God, something he had to follow. But how does he address God? He says that God is our Savior. Now, this is pretty interesting. We don't see this happen very often in the New Testament. In fact, here in the pastoral epistles and in Mary's song in Luke are the only two places we see that God is referred to as Savior. Everywhere else in the New Testament, we see it as Jesus is our Savior, right? And we're, we're more accustomed to that. We see that more often. But Paul's spending a little bit of theology. Paul's spending a little bit of theology, and what he wants us to understand is that there is this division doesn't really exist on the level that Paul is talking about. See, he ties the Father and the Son together, and he says, God is our Savior. He says, God is our Savior. He saved us from ourselves, and he has given us Christ is our hope. Paul responds out of obedience to the command from God, his Savior. Paul responds out of obedience, out of the command of Jesus Christ, his hope. Now, hope is something we hear a lot of. I mean, in, in casual conversation, we hear a lot of it. it when it comes time for campaigns for elected office. We hear a lot about hope. People stand up and they offer empty promises, which they have neither the power nor the intention to fulfill. Now, if you're an elected official and, and you campaign on hope and you actually are trying to fulfill it, caveat, you get an out. I'm not talking to you, I'm just talking about everybody else. This isn't, but we see that, do we not? Man, people just casually throw out hope. I have a, a number of friends that, that aren't Christians, and, and, and they'll say this type of thing on, on Facebook all the time. One of us will get sick, and they'll be like, man, I really hope you get better. Or one of them will get sick, and they'll say, would you guys please send your, your warm thoughts my way? I was like, no, I'm going to send some you know, lukewarm thoughts your way. 
but I'm not really sure what hot thoughts, warm thoughts, and all these things have to do with them getting better. But, but one of the things they, they say over and over again is, I really, I really hope that gets better for you. And you know what that really means? What that really means is, man, I have no power, I have no ability to affect change on your haircut even. But this ridiculous situation, this difficult situation that's facing you, man, I hope that doesn't kill you. You know, it'd be great if that would go away. I don't wish any ill will for you. We're we're, we're kind of, I'm I'm a little bit better than neutral. I want to see good things happen to you. The best I can do is say I hope and exhale really, really hard, and maybe you'll get a cool breeze. But when Paul says hope, he's not talking about a wish. He's not talking about good feelings. He's not talking about warm thoughts. When he says hope, he founds it on Jesus. He says our hope is Jesus. Jesus, who the writer of the book of Hebrews spends some time discussing, spends a great deal of time actually in the first, first four verses talking about. In verse 3, he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the word of God. He upholds the universe, y'all, by the word of his power. That's who our hope is on. Do you see the difference between between a warm thought, between well-wishing, and then Jesus who upholds the entire universe? He causes the sun to rise and set. He causes the winds, the rains, the ocean. He causes all of these things here, and he's also at work on the far side of Mars. That Jesus, he's our hope. Now that's a firm foundation. And Paul says, and that's whose command I'm following. I'm following the sovereign Lord of all things. Now he turns, and he begins to build up Timothy. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now Paul is writing to a pastor in a difficult situation. He's writing to a pastor that has a church that has a lot of people that we probably refer to as curmudgeons. These aren't people you want to have over to your house. These aren't people that you want to spend a whole lot of time with, unless, in fact, you are a curmudgeon and enjoy their their company. But these people are curmudgeons, or some of them are anyway. And so Paul writes, he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul didn't build upon his own uh, work and the things that he had done, but he begins here to build up Timothy. He says, he's my true child. Paul isn't pointing at the fact that he had anything to do with Timothy's salvation. We read in Acts 16, Timothy's already saved. He's already a disciple of Jesus at the time Paul meets him. But Paul is pointing to the fact of the legitimacy of Timothy's salvation. He writes to them, he says of Timothy, Timothy, I put my seal on him. Timothy, I have worked with. Timothy, I guarantee. Timothy, I commit to you, is in fact a bona fide Christian. He's my true child in the faith. Paul extends, in some ways, his authority to Timothy. You remember he did something very similar to this in the book of Philippians. He said, I had no one like him. He said that that Timothy would have a genuine concern for them. 
Timothy takes the authority of Paul as it is extended. And look at what Paul offers to Timothy. He offers to him grace, he offers to him mercy, and he offers to him peace. And it stems from the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you'll remember that Paul received the command through who? Through God our Savior and Jesus our hope. Paul extends to Timothy what? Grace, mercy, peace. And he does it through whom? God our Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. He is tying together his command, Timothy's authority, and this is what he extends to him. It's not a quick look out for people with shifty eyes, Timothy, but he extends to him these three things, grace, mercy, and peace. He extends to him grace. Man, this is a reminder to Timothy that God's riches were lavished upon him, not because his mother was such a sweet lady, not because he had a rough, up, a rough upbringing, not because of any of these things, not because of anything he did to deserve it, but God poured out love on Timothy. God poured out all of these things on Timothy because of Jesus. He extends to Timothy mercy. See, Timothy, just like the rest of us, was an absolute wretched sinner. It's not in Acts, but it's, I mean, you can know that there was a time before Timothy came to faith in, in that we were all wretched sinners. There was nothing we could do to please God. There was nothing we could do to satisfy God. What we deserved was, in fact, the wrath of God for our sins. God bestowed his riches on Timothy. God was merciful to Timothy. He forgave Timothy. He extended mercy towards him. And lastly, he extended to Timothy peace. See, this is this peace. It's not just a cessation of violence. It's not just a calm. It's not just sitting in a chair at the end of the day, exhaling and saying, I'm glad that one's over. See, this peace is a recognition that God is not at war with us. See, this peace is a recognition that in salvation we have peace with God. This peace is a recognition that there is a cessation from the wrath of God. That God's wrath is no longer poured out on us. It is no longer poured out on Timothy. And it is that way because of Jesus Christ our Lord and God our Savior. Now there are a lot of things Paul could have told Timothy. But as we head towards a conclusion, what I want you to see is that what he extended to him was the most important thing. Paul established his authority beyond a question of a shadow of doubt. He extended that authority to Timothy. And then he gave Timothy what every pastor needs. A reminder of God's grace. A revisitation of God's mercy and a reaffirmation of God's peace with the understanding that Timothy was to do this. Timothy, when you encounter those people that are difficult, when you encounter those situations that just make you want to pull out what hair you have left, and that is precious, precious, precious to most pastors. Timothy, when you come to that time, you be gracious because God has been gracious to you. You be merciful 
Because God has extended mercy on you before, beyond what you could ever imagine or conceive. And when you get in the midst of those situations, you don't take out your frustration on those around you, but you are reminded that you have the peace of God in your life. You have peace with God because of salvation, and you have the peace of God because of his, his constant renewing in your life. Friends, can I tell you that over the next year, we're going to encounter some difficult things. That as we take a hard look at 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, that there are going to come some questions of how we do things. And we're going to have some discussions on that, but we're going to be faithful to God's Word and our understanding of it. And the way that you and I respond to one another is one of graciousness. It's one of being merciful with one another. And it's done so in a peaceable way. Because we relate to one another with the understanding that we were all wretched sinners. God intervened in our lives and He extended to us grace. He extended us mercy and He covers us in His peace. Let me pray for us.